Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to be together this morning. My name is Matthew. If you are new, you're visiting, welcome. Um, it's really good to have you here with us today. And if we haven't met, we should say hey to each other afterwards. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. So uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to be continuing our discussion about community. And if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with the Bible passage, we'll be reading. It's going to be John chapter 1. So John, one of the books of your New Testament, a gospel about Jesus. I'm going to read uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 29 to 42, and then we'll pray, and then um, we'll see what God has for us. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two had heard that John, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, "We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed." He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, "You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask for the ability this morning to lean into the things we just sang. That the king of our heart would be the shadow where we dwell, the wind in our sails. That the thing that reverberates from our life, the echo of our days, would be you, not us. Lord, help us to get outside of ourselves and to be present with you and to be open. God, we ask for grace to just listen, for a softness in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with your presence and with your vision. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, like I said, we've been looking at community for the month of January. We're going to continue uh, for the last couple weeks of January to ask these questions about what would it mean for you and me as a church here at Trinity to be leaning more fully into into community uh, here at Trinity. What is the Father? What is the Son? What is the Holy Spirit? The Trinity, the Holy Community at the center of all things, what are they inviting you and me into. 
And there's always a desire when I talk about a thing like this. I want to try to say everything. So we have four weeks, so I'm going to say, well, like, I'll, I'll say everything that's going to create realis- realistic expectations, that's going to like, cast compelling vision, that's going to invite you into something that you then know how to do and what to do when you get there. And the reality is, is like so much of what community is is just like a lived thing. It's something you've got to figure out shoulder to shoulder uh, with people, which is something I had to remind myself of this week. You know, I spend a lot of time talking with couples who are going to get married, and it's one of the real gifts of my job is getting to walk with people in those really key, formative, foundational moments of their life. And you want to, when you're talking to a peop- uh, people are, who are about to get married, you want to try to explain to them just what it is that they are about to do, and you can't. There's no way to possibly prepare a person for what marriage is actually like. And all of us, no matter how old or mature we are, walk into it with some degree of idealism, some sense that this is going to fix a thing it's probably not going to fix. It may stir up more problems than it solves, at least initially or for a while. There's no way to really prepare a person for that sort of thing. You just have to do it. You just have to walk into it, and you've got to try, which is really, I think, what community, uh, what this is. We're just saying, like, this isn't going to fix all your problems, but will you get on the road with us? Will you learn how to do this with one another? If this is God's way of educating us in love, if this is his way of inviting us into the dynamic at the center of all things, if this is his way of getting us to replicate or to tell a story to the world of what God is like in the way that we treat each other and think of one another and fight for one another and forbear with one another, if all those things are true, uh, will you just get on the road? Will you join me on the road towards this? So today what we're going to do is, once again, we are in the water with Jesus two weeks in a row, two different stories about Jesus going into the water, which is kind of strange. Um, but again, welcome to being Anglican. Uh, the lectionary has given us these passages back to back, and in some ways, well, actually in many ways, they're actually a tremendous gift to us because uh, they're, uh, they're raising different questions. And I also think they're also giving us uh, different angles in which to think about community. First thing I want to say, though, before we jump too deeply into community is this. Uh, The power for Jesus' life was the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is the power for his life. Uh, This is seen right at the very beginning of this text. So Jesus goes into the water, and he's like sort of a nobody, like backwoods, Nazarene, blue-collar worker. And he's not a teacher. He's not a miracle worker. He's not any of these things. He's, he's like a, an everyday schmo. He goes into the water, and, he, and as he's coming up, John says, and all the other Gospels tell this story as well, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends and lands on Jesus and stays there. And that's really important. It's important theologically for this reason. The thing that empowered Jesus in his life was not something that he had in himself, but it was the presence of the Spirit on him that equipped Jesus to do the things he did, to say the things that he said. You say, why is that important? It's important for a couple of reasons. One is a purely theological and yet deeply important one. It tells us that when, when God became a human being in the Son, when the Son of God became a human being, he was more limited than you and I can imagine. There's this really beautiful text in Philippians 2 that talks about God emptying himself and making himself a servant. So it tells us a whole lot about what God is like that he would be willing to limit himself so incredibly that he in himself doesn't have the power. And Jesus, throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, is always saying this. I can't do anything on my own. I don't have the power. I don't have the words. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only say what my Father tells me to say. I only, whatever. So Jesus is constantly saying, I don't have this in myself, but but God is with me through the Spirit to give me the power to do this. That's the first thing. It's a theological thing. It warrants its own sermon or several sermons um, that, that... that might bore most of you. But anyway, I think it's, it's very important because it tells us what, what our God is like. The second thing it tells us, though, is it says something significant about what it means to be a human being. That a human being is a person who is empowered from something on the outside. 
And that with the Spirit coming into us, or as Paul would say later, people who walk in step with the Spirit, who live by the Spirit, who walk by the Spirit. And remember, when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about a word that literally means breath and wind. This idea of a thing that is all around us and inside of us that we're constantly inviting into our experience and it's giving us the energy and the life, literally the oxygen, to keep going. Those of us who walk by the Spirit, that there is actually more available to you and me and what we can do, what we would know, the effect of our life, the power and the impact of our life. And Jesus, Jesus models this for us as the perfect person. He models for you and me that what you and I need and what we're missing is the Holy Spirit. The thing that will enable and equip you more than anything else to be the sort of friend or worker or spouse or neighbor or person, human being that you and I desire to be, is actually going to be God coming and helping us do it ourselves, which is what Jesus tells us in this. So the Spirit falls on Jesus. Now, what begins to happen? This is what's really interesting about this story. The Spirit falls, that's a pretty cool moment, and then everything else in this text is about Jesus making friends. So the Spirit falls, and the very next thing that happens is a community begins to form around Jesus. I love how simple this whole scene is. It's not very exciting what happens. Jesus doesn't begin some profound teaching tour. He doesn't immediately perform miracles. He doesn't come out of the river and begin to shoot fireballs off into the Judean wilderness. He just simply comes out, and he's walking back, and some people are like, where are you going? And he's like, home. I'm wet. So he's like, would you like to come and see where I am? Would you like to come and hang out? And they say, yeah, that would be great. And it says, well, it was like 4 p.m., so they had dinner together. It's just the most relational, natural sort of thing. Where are you going? Home. You want to have dinner? Sure. And then they go and find some other people. You need to go see this person. We just found him. The Messiah is here. The anointed one. A community begins to form around Jesus. Nothing sensational. I think it's easy to romanticize or even idealize um, a moment like this. But it's also good to just step back from... A, a, so you have these four guys now. They've sort of started to gather around Jesus. If you read the rest of the Gospels, what you discover is that this group of people, this group of friends, this community that will form around Jesus is not, um, it's it's, it's kind of a, it's a a weird group. They're pretty eclectic. It's a motley crew. It's a group of people who consistently do and say the wrong thing, who don't know what to say. Uh, It's people who, by and large, are more emotionally immature than they are mature, which just means that they're like, most of us. It's a, it's a group of people that have very, very different political convictions, very different theological convictions. This is the community that begins to form around Jesus. And so just to sort of demystify it and de-idolize it, we need to recognize that what's beginning to happen right now is a group of people that have nothing in common except for this person around whom they are gathering. But this is what's beginning to form as the Spirit falls, a community. Oftentimes what you and I uh, do, and we do it with the Bible, but we do, it with, we do it all the time, is we look outside of ourselves and we look outside of our own experience and we idealize what's going on around us. We assume that there's some sort of magic that other people are experiencing that you and I are not getting. Do you, do you know this? Like there's times like you're, you're, you're like, if you're like a couple in here, you're with another couple and you drive away and you feel worse about yourself because apparently they're amazing and they're, they're always happy and you know that you're not always happy. You know that things aren't working out really well, but, it, but it's just the impression you get is it must be so great to be one of them, to be married to that person instead of the person that you're married to. 
That must be so nice. We idealize, though. We do this. We do this with other community groups. We do this with other corporations, other faculties that we could work on. We do this with other neighborhoods. We're constantly romanticizing and finding why the thing that we could be in would be better than the thing that we are in. We grass is greener eyes, basically, people around us constantly. And what this does is it keeps us in, first of all, like an artificial state. It helps us to have like an artificial uh, view of the world where we actually do think that there is something that a few people have found that you just haven't yet, but you're just a move, a job, a person away from getting it, which isn't true. Uh, And most of us spend most of our life chasing white rabbits and unicorns, trying to find a thing that doesn't exist. So it keeps us in an artificial state. And the second thing it does is it makes us very bitter. It keeps us from being able to appreciate and to live into the thing that is in front of us, that's before us in this moment right now, that's not waiting to be discovered, but is right there in the moment. It keeps us from being realistic and productive participants in the thing that's right there before us. Um, Oftentimes, I will come into a relationship with all sorts of expectations. Over the years, I've learned to to taper my expectations quite a bit in relationships. Um, But that's because I've been hurt. And that's sort of the thing. That's that's the training ground for many of us. We come into things with lots of expectations and dreams of what it will be like. And we do this with community, which is why I'm saying all this. We do this with neighborhood groups. We do this with this idea of what we're going to join. I want to share a quote with you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes. a martyr who was killed by the German Reich, a pacifist who, who spoke out against the war, um, and a person who kept the theological, who kept the church alive in Germany, was a part of the confessing church. Anyway, Bonhoeffer writes in his book Life Together, he says, Every human wish dream, which that's got to be a German translation, every human wish dream <laughs> that is injected into the Christian community, listen, is a hin- he's a very direct person is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So he's kind, he's gracious, he acknowledges that we're not trying to destroy things. He just is also acknowledging this is what is actually happening. And but you know what this is this is true in community. This is true all over the place. Like if 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 you're married in here, if you're in a romantic relationship, the pressure that you put on that person or that thing to live up to what you think it's supposed to be is actually destroying it. It's not forming it in a good direction. It's actually tearing down instead of building up. We do this in all kinds of relationships, and we certainly do it in community as well, no matter how well-meaning and earnest we are. And I know that my, the pressure I put on my marriage is coming from a place in me that desires something ultimately good. And yet, what it is actually doing, the actual effect of it, is that it's keeping me from living fully into the thing in front of me, and it's instead tearing it down. In other words, if you look internally at the community that God has given you with judgment and critique and, and criticism, we just keep creating a fantasy version. And this is, honestly, a lot of us in our life, probably even a number of reasons why some of us are in this room right now, in, at Trinity, meaning, is because we're chasing unicorns. Because we've been in things, and it's not that they've been like toxic or unhealthy, they just haven't quite been what we thought they were going to be, and so then we try something else, and we just bounce from a thing to another. As Jean Vanier said, I shared this quote last week. I don't know if I did it in both services, but he, um, he just says very, very 
poignantly, he says, stop wasting your time running after the perfect community. Live your life fully in your community today. This is one of the things that Henry Nouwen talks about in his book, Something or Other. It's got a better title than that. But he has a book where he has a chapter on waiting, and it's, I think it's reaching out. Anyway, I love, I love his, his thoughts on waiting, because so much waiting for you and me is this idea that there's a thing I'm going to get to, and I'm now in the process of waiting to get to the thing. And then Nouwen says, no, 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 waiting is a biblical muscle. It's a, it's a human muscle. And the way to live into waiting is to recognize the thing is here now. There will be something there. You'll get to that. But how do I actively participate that now is the moment where God is? Not that. Now is the place in which I can be a loving person. Not that moment over there. Now is the time when I can have a full life and a whole heart. Not when I get to graduate or when I get married or when I... Like, now is the moment. This is the place. I'm actively in the moment. And not simply holding my breath for life to actually begin. And how many of us... I mean, I'm almost 40 years old now. And I'm still, in so many ways, still kind of waiting, you know? Well, now when my kids are older, and then when they're all in school, and then, and, then, and then whatever it is, that'll open up this, and that'll mean this, and then there'll be more money, and then we'll be able to do these things, and then we'll be, it's like, how much of our life is spent that way? When actually the thing before me right now is the people, is you, is this place, is my decisions, is the opportunity to live a life. So one of the things that's been really helpful to me is uh, Bridgetown Church in Portland, who I quote all the time, they have, um, they've been thinking about community for a long time, and they developed what they just called the stages of community. And I thought it'd be really cool to just share these with you as a way of saying, like, this is what to expect. So these are, um, according to Bridgetown Church, and this, in my experience, has proven to be true, these are five stages of community. Um, and also, you could just probably say, oh, or of any relationship that's meaningful. Five stages of community. The first stage is this, the honeymoon. Not surprising. The honeymoon is the season. It's the stage where you and I feel like this really is going to be amazing. This one's going to be different. This time it's going to work. It's the thing that we bring into new things. Even in neighborhood groups where I walk into a room and I don't know the people in there, there's still this excitement of like, we're doing a thing. Isn't this cool? You want to have dinner later? Yeah, we haven't had dinner with people in a while. Like there's just this excitement around something new and and we're going to try a thing, and this is kind of scary, but here I go. Or maybe it's like, we love these people. We can't imagine. We found our soulmates. They're just like us. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to grow old with this person, whatever it is. That's, that's the honeymoon phase. It lasts for a little bit, um, and it's super fun. Everyone loves a good honeymoon. It's a super fun stage. It's just totally artificial, and it's not in any way setting you up for reality. But that is what the honeymoon is. Honestly, it's probably what you need to just grease the wheels that get you in the door. So honeymoon is the first stage. The second stage, though, is apathy. You suddenly realize that this is boring, that this is hard, that this is more tedious than it is not, that there is a thing that you, like something that you once were like, I'm going to group. It's like now it's like, ugh, we have group tonight, don't we? And like how quickly that happens where suddenly you're talking yourself into the thing that you were once excited about. This is apathy. You start to realize that the people around you are not that interesting. They're as boring as you and as everyone else you've ever met. And so you start to have to make decisions to overcome your apathy and your indifference to go and do a thing because you said you were going to do it, which can lead to the third part of community, which is called the rough patch. This is the time where the real you begins to come out. And as the real you comes out and as the real me comes out, it turns out we have a long way to go, you know? 
Like there's actually a lot of me that needs to die. There's a lot of me that needs to be formed. There's a lot of me that needs to heal. There's a lot of wounding I carry around. And I unfairly and in a way that you in no way deserve will end up hurting you out of things that have hurt me previously because hurt people hurt people. And so I'll just end up carrying on the things that have happened in my past and recreating them in the future. And this creates a rough patch. This creates conflict. This creates the sort of tension that begins to bubble up in us when expectations aren't met. Amen? So we start to go like, this isn't living up to my standards. It goes from this is boring to like, this is hard. This doesn't feel worth it. This can lead to the fourth stage if we're willing to persevere. If we're willing to get past the, this person is really annoying, or they're always sharing the same story over and over again, or they always have food in their mouth when they start talking. When we get past that, that, that rough patch, we can get into the fourth stage, which is acceptance. And acceptance is where you begin to realize that for better or for worse, these, these are people that God has put in your life. And there's something uh, that he has for you in that. And he has something in their life um, through you, if you'll stick it out. That every person in that circle is an image bearer of God. That every person in that circle has a unique expression of God in them, something that I can learn from and grow from. Um, and that I need all these people. Yeah, we're in different stages of life. Yeah, we have very different experiences. Yeah, we have different theological beliefs. Yeah, there's a lot of things why we shouldn't be in a group together, and yet here I find myself sitting in the circle with this person, with these people. And so we start to actually understand that maybe this person is annoying, maybe this person is hard, but I bet I am too. Maybe there's things about me that actually are actually driving everyone else crazy. And so we start to accept it. It's not romantic. No one wants to get to the end of the rom-com. It's like, and then they accepted the mediocrity of where they found themselves. <laughs> like, that's not, it's not, a, it's not exciting. It's not compelling. It doesn't drive anyone. It doesn't sell tickets. Um, but it's, it's actually critical. Some of you are today, maybe not in community, but in, in relationships. You are at this cusp where you're just having to figure out, like, can I just accept this for what it is or, or not? And then finally, the fifth stage is re-engagement. And in re-engagement, we press back into vulnerability, into accountability, but not with idealism. But now we know something. We have love and understanding. It's, it's, it's different. Um, this means that there'll be conflict resolution. When rough patches stir up, we actually approach them head on. We are willing to face these things. And this is a really hard place to get to. And also, the other thing to recognize is that this isn't like a once-and-done sort of thing. Uh, and and th- this sort of thing will probably cycle through multiple times. In a community, in, in a relationship, in a marriage, this, this happens again and again. Um, here's the thing, though, I want to say. Um, because, of how, because of how um, instant gratis, uh, instant gratis satisfaction, <laughs> that's a new word. Uh, <laughs> um, instant gratification, how, how we are wired to just like, find a quick fix solution, we, to get the thing we're looking for, to take the pill, to read the book, to go to the class, to go on the retreat and have it solve all of our problems. M- many people, when they bail, when they punch out, it's in the third, it's in the third phase. That's when, that's when people walk out of groups. It's also when people walk out of marriages. It's when people walk out of relationships. It's when people quit corporations. It's when people walk away from churches. It's the third, it's the third patch. And here's what, here's what. That is completely understandable because that's where it gets really, really hard and you start to go, there's got to be a better way and maybe there is a better way or maybe this is the wrong person or maybe this isn't the perfect, most idyllic thing in the world. And it's hard. It's easy to understand why people walk out. But I just want to say this to you. It's on the other side of the third step that God begins to do the deep thing that you're actually looking for. And everything before that, 
is just leading to the decision about whether or not we're going to actually do this thing with one another. Which is, which is hard, because you've got to go through a lot of stuff to get there. But it is true. It's true across the board relationally. That those who stay end up growing in the way that we would want to grow relationally. And those who leave tend to not. Now, that's not to say if you join a neighborhood group, this is a lifelong commitment. It's not to say that at all, just to be really clear. It's just to acknowledge that, that the way that this tends to work is that those who stay end up getting the benefit out of the thing that it actually was intended and engineered by God to give. And those who leave don't. And that's not to say people shouldn't move. It's not to say that there's not time to end things. It's it's just to acknowledge that, at least in this context, as we think about community, that there is a power in staying. There is a power in planting our feet and remaining even when it's hard. And choosing instead to push people away or to close our arms off to open things up and to accept people. And then on the other side of that to begin to re-engage. This is how most of Christian life feels, by the way. This is how community life feels. I was talking to Ginny this week, our pastor here over community and formation. We, uh, this is how my devotional life feels most days. It feels fruitless. It feels like I'm just running through a thing. I just have a muscle. I'm just doing it. I don't, I don't, have, I don't know about you, but I don't like every single morning like fall on my knees and have tears streaming down my face. And like I, I, so every once in a while, I have, I have genuine encounters with God, and they're, they're beautiful and wonderful, but most of my life is about just doing the next right thing, as Elsa sings in Frozen 2, <laughs> or Pr- Princess Anna. It's just doing the next right thing. I have little kids. And so, but seriously, so much, and I, I love it. I, I, I love that song, actually. I love it because Dallas Willard said, to be a Christian is to be a person who just continues to take the next right step, to do the next right thing. I know what the next thing to do is, and it's hard. It's going to cost me. It doesn't feel easy. I'm going to do it anyway. Which leads to the third thing, and I'll just say this in closing. We see this really beautiful picture with Peter, um, who's called Simon at this point. Jesus names him Cephas in this. It's probably very confusing if you're new to this whole thing. You're like, wait, which one is Peter? They're all Peter. Simon is Cephas, which is translated Peter. And Peter means rock. And Jesus meets this person, and for the very first time, he gives him a new name. He gives him a new name. And it's going to take years and years and years for that name to actually mean something to Peter. It just feels like a nickname at first. It's going to take a long time before that name becomes a calling, and that calling becomes a lived reality. But I want to say this about community because I've experienced it over the course of my life. In community, you and I can discover something about ourselves that is new, that leads to a new sense of calling. There's a name that God, I think, can give us in the context of relationship. There's a, an identity, and with that will come some sort of a role, which is, to, which is to say this. You need community, but also community needs you. Like You, you, are, you are needed. God has something through you. Your life has not been some random hodgepodge of things. The things that have cost you, that you have paid for dearly, the checks you have written, the ways you have suffered, and the ways you've succeeded, these things are leading to a unique capacity to love people in a way that only you can. And with that, you're going to begin to discover that only by taking risks and being vulnerable and stepping out and trying. So in closing, what we're going to do today is kind of unique. I'm going to invite my friend Dan to come up and tell a little bit of his story to help us kind of get a bit of this, like, how does this actually work? Not just when, like, I'm talking about it, but what does it look like in real life? So Dan, why don't you come on up, and I'm going to move down there.
Good morning. Hey, everyone. It's been a long time. So, um, so why don't we just begin with this, Dan? Uh, just just tell, uh, tell the people here how you came to Trinity. Okay. It was uh, about a little over 11 years ago, and it was on the west side. And I was a part of a mega church at the time, and I was feeling kind of invisible. So uh, because of a lot of things that were going on in my life at the time, I was looking for a smaller community where I could be more well-known, and several people mentioned Trinity to me, so I decided to check it out. And the very first time I came, I thought the service started at 11 o'clock, and it started at 11.30. So I sat in the sanctuary for 30 minutes, and then I went through the whole service, and then I went out into the lobby, and I got a cup of coffee, and I stood there, and no one spoke to me the entire time. And I walked out of the building that day, and I said, that is the rudest church I have ever been to in my life. But um, there was something that happened spiritually that kept me coming back. And I didn't feel like I fit in for the longest time because at the time I was 50 and there was an even younger demographic than there is now. And uh, so um, people were acting interested in me and that they were wanting to have a relationship with me. But my perception was I had nothing to offer. Yeah. Yeah. So... What, at what point did you start to feel like you did um, belong or have something to offer? It was probably about three years later. They were starting what they call community groups back then. And I decided I was going to lead a group. And I was living in Cabbage Town at the time, so it was on the east side. And there was no east side parish, so the group started growing really quickly. And uh, it was an incredibly diverse gathering of people. It was... 20s to 50s, married, single, divorced, kids, no kids, people who were believers and people who were trying to figure it all out. And I had never experienced anything like that in the church because up to that point, every group I had ever been in was people who were in the same stage of life as me or the same age as me. And it was just incredibly life-giving. And a lot of those relationships have continued today. In fact, there are families in this parish who came out of that group and it was just a bunch of people who were kind of hungering for connection all at the same time and we yeah. found each other and it, it clicked so it's awesome yeah um yeah i've been friends with dan for a number of years now and he talks about this group in a way that i i've described as he it's a, the lionized community group it's just this like larger than life beautiful thing but it really was a moment that you all experienced um that feels like this gift that god gave to y'all when you needed it um so I know also you've, like, you've experienced community in, in less uh, conventional ways. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. Um, just to give you a little background, after the East Side Parish started, I lost my job. And I had been in that job for eight years, and I'd been in that career for my entire adult life. And so it felt, um, you know, it was kind of a stressful time in my life. And I had met this couple who was pretty new to Trinity, and they lived in Cabbage Town as well. And all of a sudden, the guy started really encouraging me and giving me things to read that had to do with my current situation. And um, I was really taken by the fact that he was 25 years younger than me, and yet he wasn't um, letting that be a barrier to him speaking truth into my life. And it started this really deep, meaningful 
relationship, and a lot of the things he said to me then had a direct impact on me starting my own company about four years ago, which is doing pretty well right now. And so I'm very thankful to him. And But at the same time, I was trying to figure things out financially, and one of the things I thought I was going to have to do is to sell my home. And um, I remembered them saying that they were looking at buying their first house. So I had this idea, and I prayed about it, and I went to them, and I said, what if you bought a house with some rental property, and that I uh, started renting from you. And instead of them acting like it was a crazy idea, they said, are you serious? And um, they became my landlords. So way more important, though, is they became like family to me. And uh, it has been an incredible privilege to be like an uncle to their children and to be able to watch a loving family up close as a single man is something that I'd never thought I would get to experience. And it's been an incredibly healing thing in my life. And uh, mm. it's just really um, brought home to me that family doesn't have to happen in all the traditional, conventional ways. Everybody tells us that it has to happen. So. Um, what, what has God been saying to you in all this? What are you learning from him? Um, some of what you were saying earlier, I feel like I have to keep learning it over and over because uh, the part of the reason I do community and why I lean into community because it's a place where I come to believe that I belong and that I'm loved and that I have something to give. Um, part of the thing that really began to help me through this process was a few years ago, my father passed away. And I was sitting in a worship service not long after that, and we were singing songs about God being our father. And I was sitting there having an argument with God in my mind about um, I didn't have a close relationship with my father growing up, and I'm not a father, and how am I supposed to understand you when you describe yourself in these terms? And all of a sudden this thought came in my head, and um, I know it wasn't me because I'm not this poetic, but uh, I feel like God said to me, Dan, you may never be a father as a noun, but you're going to be a father as a verb. And that was a pivot point in my life. It shifted my identity from being somebody who was missing out on love or missing out on the life that other people got to live into somebody that could find it in God's family here in the church. Mm. And as I started leaning into that, um, the relationship started to happen. The connection started to happen. And I could tell you so many stories, but one of the ones that really jumps out at me is uh, there was a couple in the church that got married, and the father of the groom had already passed away, and they asked me to stand in place of the father at the wedding. And I never thought I would have that kind of opportunity. And it just has shown me over and over, if I quit demanding how meaningful relationships are supposed to happen, that God will operate outside the box and bring them to me. So um, I may have never had a biological family, but I've had family in this church. So um, it's really good. It's so beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, just in closing, why don't you, uh, how, is, how has all this shaped your vision for what community can be? Um, I feel like I have to say first, if you know me, you know I'm a people person, and you know I'm an extrovert, and a lot of you in here aren't. And so it makes the things I'm talking about feel 
doubly hard for you. Mm. And um, I started having conversations with people about a year ago about how, how can we do this better? How can we make it easier for our people? And a couple of things kept jumping out at me. One was um, this wasn't a single person issue. I talk to married people all the time who are feeling the same thing. They feel lonely. They feel disconnected. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me, I won't lie. Uh, the second thing was that people um, said the main reason they didn't have community is they were too busy. They just couldn't fit one more thing into their schedules. And it was about that time that somebody gave me a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I uh, didn't like everything in it, but there was a quote by the author, Rosaria Butterfield, that really um, stood out at me. It's something we got on the screen. Yeah. Uh, entertainment is about impressing people and keeping them at arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are. And the way she described those things helped me think that if we can um, begin to give up on this idea of having to entertain, then we can free ourselves up to be ourselves and that we can stop acting like uh, our homes aren't messy or acting like we have children that aren't always perfect, and that we can uh, just be ourselves and invite people mm. into um, our own rhythms. Um, let's see if there's anything else I want yeah. to say here. Because <laughs> um, it's amazing to me. We all know um, what life looks like anyway, and it's not perfect. So why do we spend so much time and effort on pretending that it's something different? And uh, probably the last thing for me is my mom passed away a month ago. And as an older single man with no immediate family around me, these conversations carry on a lot of depth. These aren't just ideas. I need this to be a reality in my life, as so many of you do for different reasons than I do. And so it's just my prayer as we start these neighborhood groups that we can begin to open up our hearts and our our homes and even our imaginations to what this might look like for our church going forward. It's mm. really good. Thank you so much, Dan. Stand up together. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.